Well, we're working our way through the book of Acts chapter by chapter. This morning we made it to chapter 7, so if you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have one that you can have, a brand new one that uh, we would love to give you at the end of the service. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. With the, ver- the words will appear behind me on the screen when we get to uh, the time where we read the Scripture together. Um, if you're anything like me, you've seen the church. You've seen the church uh, at her best and maybe even at her worst. I've seen both. I've seen the church, and by this I'm not talking about Capshaw Baptist, I'm talking about the, the big church. I've seen the church in her glory and beauty, coming to the aid of those who are hurting, uh, rescuing and loving and caring for and serving those who are without and walking alongside those who are hurting. And I've seen the church in her ugliness, frankly. I've seen the church uh, ignore. I've seen the church malign. I've seen the church um, unfairly judge, criticize, lead people out. And so we, we've, we've seen all of those things. We know that because the church is made up of imperfect people, that the church is imperfect. Um, And we see this in our own experience, and we also see it throughout history. Sometimes people say, well, I would love to be part of a church if the church were like the New Testament church. Well, they must not realize that the New Testament church was filled with issues as well. In fact, most of the letters, the epistles in the New Testament are written to address a specific issue within the church. The church is not perfect, The church has never been perfect, uh, but the church is the bride of Christ whom God the Father loves deeply. Uh, There is one thing, though, that the early church seemed to get, and I think grasp a lot better maybe than than contemporary churches, and that is they, they had this passionate commitment to mission. There was a mission to get the good news of the gospel out, and it really drove them and compelled them in all of their efforts. It moved God's people to, as we're going to see as we get later into this book, specifically the the teen chapters of Acts, it moved God's people to to go collectively and corporately out where other people happen to be, unbelievers, and to share the good news with them. And it moved this commitment to mission. It moved the leaders of the church to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ and Him crucified, even when they knew that it might cost them dearly. And in some cases, we're going to see this morning, when it may cost them their very lives. There are at least 20 sermons in the book of Acts. This morning, we're going to look at the longest sermon in the book. And you might think, well, surely this is a sermon by one of the great apostles. This is a sermon by by one of the original disciples. But that's not the case. The the longest sermon in Acts is actually a sermon by Stephen, who was a deacon. Uh, We we considered uh, how that all went down last week. There are four movements to this sermon but uh, I'm going to kind of summarize those movements into three points as, as we work our way along. And they will really have to do with a couple of things. How God deals with His people and how His people approach Him. So how God deals with His people and how God's people approach Him. Um, the sermon, Stephen's sermon, is actually 53 verses. I'm not going to read uh, the whole thing. I, I, I read it yesterday at my kitchen table. It took me like seven and a half minutes. And so what I'm going to read, I'm going to read some portions of it, and then I'll summarize the portions that I, I go over. So uh, let's look, uh, for starters, at Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And remember, this is in response to the blasphemy charges that have been leveled against Stephen. Here reads the word of the Lord. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia 
before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So if you were here last week, you saw that Stephen has been falsely accused of blaspheming Moses, the law, the temple. And because the people who were arguing with Stephen could find no way to legitimately charge him with anything, they went behind his back and they sort of stirred up people, go say this about Stephen. Go say that you've heard him say this, when actually none of it was true. So this is part, well, the part that I read was part one of, of Stephen's sermon. Uh, in response to the accusation, what Stephen does is he really provides this kind of a brief history of Israel and Israel's rejection of God's prophet. So I'm going to do something different. Usually I kind of explain the text, then give you the point. I'm going to give you the first point and then explain it as we go along. Here's our first point. God is always sovereignly and graciously working, even through the evils and failures of men, toward a beautiful and designed end. God is always sovereignly and graciously working, even through the evils and failures of men, toward a beautiful and designed end. So what Stephen's going to do is he's going to give, in response to these accusations, he's going to preach this sermon in which he recites Israel's history, he goes from Abraham to Joseph and then to Moses. First of all, Abraham. Abraham uh, was born in a place that we now call Iraq, and God appeared to Abraham and said, I want you to go to the land that I will show you. Abraham packed up all the stuff and headed out in the direction that God had told him, um, and he makes it halfway there before his father dies. God hadn't told him to stop yet, but but they kind of set up shop halfway to the intended location. But verse 4 tells us that God, quote, removed Abraham into the promised land. This word removed, it's a the word that Stephen uses, a Greek word that only appears twice in the New Testament. And it has to do with God's sort of supernatural and sovereign nudging. And so Abraham, we don't know, maybe he's just taking a break or he's worn out or he's mourning or whatever it is. And God supernaturally nudges Abraham along, moves him along. To the place that he had told him to go. Next, Stephen brings up Joseph. You may remember Joseph, one of uh, Abraham's great grandsons. He was the guy who wore the bright coat, right? He was the guy that that had, that has fa his father gave him the coat of many colors. Jo Joseph had a lot of brothers, um, but Joseph's father loved Joseph the best, and, and wasn't sadly was not afraid to show it. So he lavished affection upon Joseph. He gave him this coat of many colors, and Joseph's brothers then were filled with jealousy and rage. They decided in their anger that they would sell Joseph to some slave traders who were walking by, and Joseph would eventually end up in Egypt. He would then ascend up the ranks until he was the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7 tell us 
but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. So here, talk about God working through the evil intentions of men. Joseph's brothers wanted to destroy him. They didn't want to kill him necessarily because of what that might do to their father, but they wanted him out of their sight, banished from their presence, and they really didn't care what happened to him. But even Joseph, as he recounts the situation, and later on in Genesis 50, he would say, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Joseph seeing God's sovereign hand at work. In other words, even through the jealousy and evil schemes of the patriarchs, God was patiently and mercifully working out all things according to His plan, working for the deliverance of His people through the person of Joseph, who was a type of Christ. He was, he was pointing to and prefiguring Jesus. Well, Joseph ends up in, in prison, as, as you may recall, if you remember the story. Uh, he's brought up and exalted to the king's very presence. He's given a name above every other name in the land of Egypt so that through Joseph, salvation would come to his family, to his whole household. Does this sound familiar to you? Next, Stephen brings up Moses. When Israel is enslaved to the Egyptians, God raised up a deliverer who would come and free his oppressed people. But what do they do? They reject Moses. Moses tries to bring peace, and they say to Moses the very same thing they would say to Jesus the religious leaders would say to Jesus many years later, and that is, who made you a king or a ruler over us? So again, God providing a rescuer, providing a redeemer, and yet rejected by His people. Look at verses 30 and through 37 as we continue in this sermon. Now, when 40 years had passed, this is again Stephen still preaching here, an angel appeared to him, that is Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look there, and there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, Stephen says, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you, raise up for you a prophet like me, from your brothers. So there's a theme going on here. God's people rebel. God's people end up enslaved because of their own rejection of the true God, and God sends a rescuer to them. But what do they do? They constantly and continually reject the one that God sends. And so they, and, and Stephen is, he's getting somewhere with this, as we're going to see in just a moment. God sends the redeemers to them, they rescue, and then they turn to their own ways. In fact, we would read later that they would rebel against God and His servant in the wilderness. They would, uh, they would make an, an idol out of a calf that they would worship. They would end up worshiping the false gods in Canaan. But even so, God will not let His people go. Even so, God will not let His people destroy themselves. 
He led them out, having performed wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, here's what Stephen is doing. Being charged with blasphemy, he goes and he's showing the people of Israel how they have always rejected God's provision. They have always rejected God's redeemers. And they would do so most pointedly by rejecting God's ultimate and long-promised Redeemer, Jesus Christ. But Stephen also shows, now every, every good sermon should, should have law and conviction and, and help us to be aware of our shortcomings, but Stephen also provides hope. He shows how God will continue to sovereignly and graciously work even through the failures of the patriarchs, even through the evils of other people toward a beautiful and designed end. And here's where this applies so beautifully to us. God's still doing the same thing today. He's still working through failures and setbacks and through the evils of other people, through our own, uh, our own huge failures, and He is bringing about sovereignly a designed end which is for His glory and our good. And I don't know what each person is going through this morning in this room, but maybe you have somebody in your life who, who's just failed you terribly. They've betrayed you, they've abandoned you, they've rejected you, and you're thinking, how could this ever end good? Well, the, the, the witness of Scripture is that even in and through that, God is, has something in store for you that is better than you can even imagine, and it's also going to be for His glory. Maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm really reflecting on my own failure. And you're thinking, you don't know the way that I've failed, even in your own failure. God is shaping and molding and strengthening your faith and moving you along toward His designed end, which is, again, for your ultimate good and His glory. Maybe you have somebody who in your life right now is just really kind of digging in their heels and it seems like everything you try to do, they just reject it. I had somebody when I first got into television, the television industry who, I'm not going to tell you his name because you may recognize it, but whatever I did, this guy just could not stand me. And everything I did, he tried to undo. It was so frustrating as a guy just trying to make his way in the business. And I, I would often ask myself, what have I done to this guy? And maybe you have somebody in your life, you're thinking, what have I done to this person that they would be so against me? Well, even through that, even in that circumstance, God is a million steps ahead of you. And He is working in such a way that will yield, end up for your good and His glory. And this is what Stephen is saying. This is what God is doing. But just like the Israelites in Stephen's day, we have a hard time resting in God's sovereign plan, don't we? We have a hard time trusting that what God has in store is good. We want to be in control. And let me say it to my own shame, I want to be in control. I want to manage my own life. I want to hold on to the reins. I don't want to surrender. I want to be the one in charge. Well, Stephen will appoint, uh, he will confront this with the religious leaders as they listen. In fact, three times he will, he will use the word hands in this section. I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, when you see something repeated like that, it's, it's worth taking special notice. In verse 41, he says, he mentions how in the incident of the golden calf, Israel rejoiced in the work of their hands. In verse 48, Stephen declares, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by what? By human hands. 
Verse 50, through Isaiah, God declares, was it not my hand that made all these things? This is a, this is a metaphor. What Stephen is doing is he's confronting all the ways that the religious leaders here believe and try to save themselves. All the ways they rest in and rely on their own strength. All the ways they, they subtly believe that they can do enough to save themselves. One theologian writes, The root evil in many in Israel was that they derived their joy, their fulfillment, their meaning, their sense of significance from what they could achieve with their own hands. They wanted a kind of God and a kind of worship in which they could demonstrate their own power and their own wisdom and their own righteousness and their own morality and their own religious zeal. Now, sometimes we, we read back in the Old Testament and we see the, the, the incredible ways that, that God works in Israel and the miraculous ways that He delivers them, and yet they continue to fall back into their own rebellion. And we look kind of back in a condemning way and we say, we just don't, we don't understand it. Maybe we're incredulous. Like, how could they keep doing that? But the reality is we, we do the same thing all the time. This is not just Israel's issue. This is everyone's issue. Every time we sin, we reject Christ's authority over us. Every time we choose our wisdom, our way, our insight, our preferences, our desires over what God has revealed to us in Scripture, we push Him to the side. We all tend to believe at some level, though we would never say it, I can do enough. If I'm just good enough, then God will receive me. It's been that way since our first parents. Now, here's our second point. God's created ones are constantly rejecting His rescuer in favor of the works of their hands. This has been going on since our first parents. I get asked occasionally from different people, especially, you know, we're, obviously this is a very political, politically tense time, and some people are looking ahead, they're trying to project ahead, what's going to happen to our nation, what's going to happen to us, and so on, and so I get, I get questions a variety of questions asked about this, but, but one I get somewhat regularly is, what do you see as the greatest threat to Christianity in our country? And I kind of, when I answer that question, I kind of zoom out a little bit and I say, well, if we lived in a different part of the world, we lived in the East or what's called the Global South, I would say the greatest threat to the Christian faith is the prosperity gospel, which is this idea that if you just believe enough and you have enough faith and God's going to make you rich and you're going to stay healthy and you're never going to have any problems, and if you do have problems, it's because you don't really have enough faith. And if you've traveled anywhere else in the world, especially, again, on the continent of Africa, some places in South Asia, you see the prosperity gospel is just absolutely wreaking havoc. And so I say, I think if we lived in another part of the country, a world rather, I might say the prosperity gospel, but I think here in North America, it's the gospel of moralism, which is the idea that really what God requires of us, the whole Christian faith is about just being better people cussing less and acting nicer and being more respectful and being more polite and whatever it is, that's really the essence of it. And I think, you know, you go to any number of churches and people say, why would we, why do we want to plant other churches? Aren't there enough churches in our country? And the answer is, there are a lot of churches, but where people get a belly full of moralism every week, how to be a better whatever. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not the Christian faith. In fact, if this is the case, all it is is for us just to try to be better people. We don't really need a Savior, do we? We just sort of try harder and become more disciplined and set our mind to it or whatever it is. 
We would rather rely on our own ability, what the Scriptures refer to, the works of our hands, than repent and trust only in Christ and His finished work. But the problem is the works of our hands, as Stephen will point out to his own ultimate demise, they can never save us. Our very best efforts, the nicest things you do, the kindest things I do, you help somebody across the street, you bring a meal to somebody, those are all good things. And we've been the beneficiary of those kind gestures in our church. But the nicest thing we can ever do, it falls infinitely short of the perfection that God requires of us. I mentioned to you last week, R.C. Sproul, who died uh, four or five years ago, as I recall, and the influence that he said. I always like to look at people who've had a lot of influence and, and see who mentored them. Because then you can learn a lot about somebody by who, who mentors them. Um, and, and basically, you know, you look at some of the greatest leaders in history, some of the greatest influencers, men and women, they've all had mentors who have helped to shape and guide. Uh, Martin Luther had Johann von Staupitz, who was a guy who came alongside Martin Luther when Martin Luther was about ready to just give up. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was mentored by Benjamin E. Mays, who was a, a preacher in Atlanta, who was uh, a very influential in Dr. King's life. And of course, you can see this in any, fear, any sphere of life, any, any area of life. The people who are really influential have mentors. Think about in the movies, Luke Skywalker had Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? Uh, Quincy Jones, if you like music, he was mentored by Ray Charles, the genius Ray Charles. This is why Quincy Jones has had such an impact. Um, and mentors are not always good. You know, Jesse Pinkman had Walter White, and that didn't go so well. Um, you know, there, there are people who have different mentors. Scooby-Doo had Scrappy-Doo for the kids in here. Everybody has a mentor. Um, but Martin Luther's mentor was, was a guy by the name of John Gerstner, who was a real lifeline to Sproul. I'm sorry, R.C. Sproul's mentor. And here's what Gerstner once wrote. The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. Your damnable good works. Now, of course, sin is what separates us from God. But what Gerstner was saying is it's our good works. It's all the things that we do that we think we can rely on. All the things we do that we think would earn us favor with God. Those are the things that leave us confident in ourselves and thus rejecting our Savior. And this was the case with the, with the people of Israel to whom this sermon was preached. Now, there's something else I want you to see from the sermon. Look at verses 48 through 53. Stephen continues, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Well, may, not be, may that not be the case for us this morning. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. See, the people that Stephen is preaching to, and he's building this case against, really, and they don't realize it, but they, what they saw, they saw in the temple, they saw a place where they had special, unique access to God. 
And they thought that the temple was a place where they would really find God's approval by going to the temple and worshiping in a certain way with specific rituals in the temple. Now we see they do this, but at the same time they're rejecting the poor among them. They're, they're paying no attention to, the, to the, uh, those who are without and those who are in need among them. And we see this in other prophets. And what Stephen makes so clear in his sermon is the main issue is not where they worshipped, but the way they were seeking after God. One of the points that uh, Pastor Adam made last Sunday morning in the first service in his greeting time was, uh, which I thought was so helpful, was when we say on Sunday morning, we stand up and we say, uh, welcome to Capshaw Baptist Church. It's a, bit, uh, it's a bit misleading in the sense that this building is not Capshaw Baptist Church. This building could burn to the ground and Capshaw Baptist Church would remain 100% intact. This building could be the seat that you're in whatever color that is, that green color could be swept up in a tornado and nothing would happen to Capshaw Baptist Church. The Lord willing, right? Yeah. Uh, the, 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 this is uh, not Lord willing, nothing would happen to Capshaw Baptist Church. The church would still exist because the church is not this building. The church is the people of God. This building doesn't give us any better access to God. In fact, sometimes people refer to this room as the sanctuary, which I I don't really like for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because there's nothing special about this room at all. But the other reason is it implies that we kind of come to this room, this sanctuary, to find a safe place from a cruel world and sort of gather up together in our Christian bubble, when really this is the place we come together to be equipped and strengthened to go out and reach people. So this, there's nothing special about this building. Sometimes people will talk about this stage or whatever. They'll say, it's the altar. This, no, this is nothing. This is nothing but a set of steps, a stage. There's nothing significant about this. There's nothing, there's nothing magical about this particular building. There's nothing about this building that's special in any way. God has, we could, we could as a church, we could decide we're going to go worship on, on the Lord's Day. We're going to all gather by the lake. We're all gather in the woods. We're all gather anywhere. And that's where Capshaw Baptist Church would be on that Sunday. God has no concern about where we worship but he's very concerned about how we worship. He's very concerned about the way that we would choose to approach him. He's not concerned about where we worship, but he is concerned about that we worship him through the person and work of his son alone. Here's our final point this morning. What God demands is not worship in a specific location or by way of certain rituals, but worship through a person. The shed blood of Jesus has gained for us total access to God the Father, and that privilege that is ours should prompt us to respond joyfully and continually in worship and in prayer. Now, I'll just share a very candid illustration with you. A few years ago, probably seven or eight years ago, I was, as a pastor, I was really struggling with my prayer life. And we were going through a lot as a church and, and a number of things going on, and I just found that I was coming to the office, I was immediately jumping into emails and voicemails and everything else and text messages, and I, f I found that I was having a hard time really carving out time to pray. And so I, I, I reached out to a guy in our church that I really I knew and loved a ton, and it was a guy who was known for, uh, I mean, not something he promoted, but a guy who was deeply committed to prayer, sometimes spending you know, over an hour a day just in prayer. And so I went to him, and I, I was very honest with him. I said, I'm, I'm having a hard time, I, I'm becoming so busy doing the work of ministry that I find myself not spending the time in prayer like I would like to. 
And he said, what really changed for me was I stopped looking at prayer as something I have to do, to kind of, you know, all my list of things to do. And I started to understand the privilege that is mine, that is ours as God's people, to actually gain an audience with God, to have God's undivided attention. And he said, when I started to think about it that way, rather than as a task for me to accomplish, but rather this incredible privilege that I have to actually go before the Lord and have the Lord delight in me and listen to me and respond to my prayers. He said, what really blew my mind and and, and stirred my prayer life was a reality that in prayer I have God's undivided attention. The death and resurrection of Jesus has made it possible for us to be forgiven, uh, but also for us to go directly to God in worship, prayer, and praise. And the Jewish leaders, of course, they didn't understand this because they didn't recognize Jesus as the Christ. Stephen had completely unraveled all the accusations against him, but as any good sermon will do, he didn't simply make it about himself or what he had learned and make it simply a history lesson. He confronted his audience with a call to respond. He said, in essence, I've been accused. I've been accused of blaspheming the temple. I've been accused of denigrating Moses and the law and 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 the person, the work of God, and so on. But he said, actually, you're the ones. You're the ones who are missing the boat here. I understand how all this has been fulfilled, and you don't even recognize that. I understand how Moses, Abraham, Joseph, the tabernacle, the temple, the Word of God, the presence of God, all of these things are pointing to Jesus Christ, whom you have rejected and even killed. So you may say that I'm the blasphemer, but actually, you have failed to realize that from, na- from Adam to now, what God is calling us to do is to place, put our faith on this person, the only place where God's presence truly dwells in full, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And Stephen would say, he's not dead. You may have killed him, but he's not dead. He stands as a crucified king who's come back from the dead, raised to life. He reigns on high. His name is Jesus I know him and you have rejected him, but even now, God is calling you to repent and believe. This is the most important moment in their lives. Now, they had more scripture memorized than we'll ever have. They knew the scriptures. They could recite. This is the most important moment in their lives because Stephen has put forth in front of them how Jesus Christ is the revelation of God, the fulfillment of all the prophets and the law, and he's inviting them to receive Christ. Now, to say they responded poorly would be an understatement. Look at verses 54 through 60. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll come up, we'll talk about him next week. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now we read that. And can you even, can you imagine this scene? I mean, these, these are grown men. 
respected leaders in the community, they're literally covering, covering their ears. They won't listen. Don't say that. Don't say they're covering their ears like a child would. They don't want to hear what Stephen had to say. They, gra- they grab him. They drag him away, and they stone him to death. But while they're hurling their rocks at him, Stephen is looking up to heaven. This is some kind of faith, isn't it? Some kind of focus. I would be trying everything I could to dodge every rock, deflect, reflect, drop and roll, whatever it took. He's looking up to heaven, and God peels back the curtain, as it were, and he allows him to to get just a glimpse into heaven. Not just heaven, but he sees Jesus himself standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was bearing witness to Jesus. The Greek word for witness is martyria, which is the, the word from which we get martyr. Stephen was the first martyr for Jesus the first to surrender his own life for the one who gave his life for us. And even while the rocks are flying at his head, which would, of course, claim his life, Stephen is asking God not to hold their sins against them. Now, this doesn't mean that they would be forgiven. God's forgiveness is free in Christ, but it cannot be granted to us by someone else. It requires repentance and faith. Well, Stephen, it just shows the depth of his grace and his compassion and his courage. And I think all of this begs a question. How does a person face death with such courage? How does a person who's, who's having literal rocks flying at his head muster up such fortitude? Well, one of the points that we make a lot around here is that Christianity is not for the strong, but for the weak. The whole story of the Bible is the account of weak and helpless sinners being rescued by an all-powerful God. As followers of Jesus, we are the most dependent of all people in a world that cherishes independence. We are the most self-suspicious of all people in a world that esteems those who never question themselves. We are the most powerless in ourselves in a world in which superhero movies gross billions of dollars. We are the most reliant of all people on God's grace in a world that reveres, idolizes self-reliance. In the twilight of his life, and what we might call the defining moment of his life, a moment of introspection and gospel reflection, the Apostle Paul says, God's power is made perfect In what? In our weakness. Billionaire mogul, media mogul Ted Turner was right in a way when he said that Christianity is for losers. We are those who recognize we cannot save ourselves. We cannot make it on our own. We have no power or ability whatsoever in our own strength to save ourselves. We are hopelessly lost and in need of someone else to save us. I've often made the point, either in verbal or written form, that the trajectory of the Christian life is not upward, but downward. It is to become more dependent on God and His grace, less independent, more aware of our need for forgiveness, not uh, more self-reliant. It is the recognition day by day of just how much we need God's grace in Christ. The call to follow Christ is a call to renounce all self-reliance and despair of any saving trust in our own ability. Now, having said all that, which is absolutely essential to understanding the Christian faith, it must also be pointed out that there is 
another side to this coin. There is a strength. There is a fearlessness. There is a boldness. There is a courage that Christians have that no one else can ever match. We might call it a gospel strength. Those who recognize who God is and who we are to Him are the boldest, the most courageous, the strongest people on the planet. Who else would go to another country and preach the gospel knowing that it may cost them their very life? Who else would go and tell the, the old, old story about Jesus, His death and resurrection, knowing that it may bring mockery and scorn and rejection? Who else would cling to Christ in faith, knowing that it may result in their own family disowning them? There's a reason that the Old Testament calls God's people repeatedly to be strong and courageous, and the New Testament echoes that very same imperative, regularly commanding Christ's followers to be strong. Again, this is not a strength in and of ourselves. This is not a strength that we muster up by trying harder or, or, or digging down deep or anything like that. It's a strength that is anchored in Christ and His finished work. Chris Colquitt is a, a guy who works in campus ministry at Northwestern, which is a university uh, north of Chicago. He writes this, Many of us are rightly cautious about moralizing Old Testament stories of courage, such as David and Goliath. And by this he means you know, reading David and Goliath and saying, yeah, you can overcome the giants in your life and so on. But if calls to strength and courage persist in the New Testament, then Christ's fulfillment is not the end of the story, but rather the basis for a deeper and more confident strength. We are the cowering people of Israel, and Christ is David, to be sure. But I love this. After David's victory on their behalf, the frightened soldiers rise up in courage to pursue and defeat the Philistines. There is a strength and there is a courage that comes from knowing that we belong to God and nothing or no one can ever separate us from God. And there's a courage that no one else can actually replicate. There's a courage that comes from being united with Christ, from being so sure that the ending for us will be good, even if we die a horrible death to get there. There is a strength that comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's not a strength that empowers toward personal glory or accolades, but one that enables us to face anything we encounter, from a virus to a pandemic to rejection to rebellion to abandonment. And we can do all that knowing that God will never abandon us in Christ. There is a courage that comes from knowing that even if everyone else turns against us, even if the world turns against us, God is always with us and for us in Christ. He is always working good for us. And for that, we have a thousand reasons to praise Him and more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a great morning to be with your people. What a great morning to sing your praises. What a great morning to, to reflect on this beautiful sermon by Stephen who is just, even at the cost of his own life, pointing his audience to Christ. And Father, I pray this morning by your Spirit, you will open our eyes to the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Help us to see all the ways. Help me to see all the ways, Lord, that I try to do this on my own. 
that I think by planning and scheduling and strategizing and all of these things that I can accomplish any good thing. Help us, Lord, to realize this morning our absolute and complete dependence upon you. But also, Lord, help us to understand because we are in Christ, because we belong to you, because nothing can ever happen to us apart from what you and your sovereign will allow. Help us to be people of courage, to be people of conviction, to be people of boldness and strength. And when we see any good thing happen, help us to turn in gratitude and praise to you. The giver of every good gift, the redeemer of those who are lost, the healer and the author of life. And we'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.